Hello, my name is Nick Sararis. This is episode number 12 of the Upper Bowl GM podcast, and we are in the thick of football season. We had a very interesting weekend where some very weird outcomes, Kyle Shanahan and Robert Sala limped through that game against the Rams and managed to win at the wire. The Falcons came out and mud stomped the Raiders, but Unlike the last several episodes of this podcast, today is a hockey episode. We still don't know when the 2021 NHL season is going to happen. If it does happen, there were some talks about maybe the players aren't going to go for whatever concessions the owners are asking for. But assuming that we do have a hockey season that starts at some point in next February, I thought it was important to go outside of my circle of immediate friends and find someone I'd call an expert to talk about one of the more important players in this hypothetical rebuild that the Rangers are in, in which they are banking on young guys being the center of attention, that the guys they've drafted, the Capococos, the Alexi Lafreniere's, the Keandre Millers, the Nils Lundqvist's, the Igor Shosturkin's, Those guys are going to have to be the focal point of an eventually competitive team. Because one of those players, Capococco, had one of the worst seasons of any player, not just rookie, one of the worst seasons of any NHL player of the last 10, 15 years. I went to go look through, try and find someone who could help me explain it in layman's terms, what made him struggle so much. So I went and just reached out to one of the people I like to read's work, and he was glad enough to oblige. His work has been featured in The Athletic. His work has been featured on Sportsnet up in Canada. Jay Fresh Hockey. One of the best follows on Twitter if you're a hockey fan. I highly recommend it. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. Punched along to Jerome McGinley. Crosby scores! It's over! And I welcome on one of my favorite follows on Twitter, one of the smart hockey people who you should probably be following if you're not already. How you doing, Jack? I'm not doing too bad. How about you? I'm excited to have this conversation because you're one of the interesting hockey people who doesn't have their head up their ass when they're writing. So it was really good to see that you wanted to come on and talk. So let's just jump right into the rundown I've got here. Are you a math guy first or a hockey guy first? I'm a hockey guy. I'm I'm not much of a math guy. I think it might come across in, in my writing where certain kind of more technical things I tend to shy away from just because I don't have that hard stats background that a lot of people who are doing the whole hockey analytics thing do. Uh, I, I don't think I, you know, hide that at all. Uh, I have been a hockey fan for most of my life since I think like 2004 when I was like eight years old. I've been... Uh, even remotely confident in math for approximately like two years top. So definitely kind of things more from the hockey than the, uh, than any kind of proper math background. And I think my high school report cards can uh, reflect that. Yeah. I, I'm in the same exact boat. It's one of the reasons why your writing is, is so strong is that you don't need to fall back on the numbers to make your argument. You do a good job of expressing it verbally. So how did you get into analytics first is just learning to use them to form your own opinion and then more so for 
creative purposes for creating content? How'd you get into it? Sure, I, I think probably the same way a lot of people did, which is just stumbling on it. Like there, there were different visualizations that were going on or going around, you know, four or five years ago, uh, those hero charts where you kind of saw how a player ranked percentile wise and goals, assists and points and coursing and stuff like that. Uh, and then Micah McCurdy's uh, heat maps, I think are still kind of the biggest thing going. And, and those definitely were something that I was super interested in. Uh, it, it really wasn't a matter of kind of me personally getting into things in depth any more than that until you know, maybe a year and a half ago when I started to take a bit more of an interest in what was behind those those visualizations as opposed to just kind of looking at the visualizations and letting them form my opinions from there. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. I remember it took a while for it to start to get more mainstream where publications were using them. It wasn't just people in the content community, whether it was on YouTube or just people blogging for less of a better term. But once The Athletic came around and started using it a little more mainstream, I know Sportsnet sure. has a few guys. I know TSN has a few guys. It, it helps when it has a bigger platform. That way more people can understand them. And I think that's the biggest barrier we need to break is that these aren't overly complicated things. Like you and I both said, we're not math people at our basis, but because we understand hockey, learning how to use these numbers to better understand what we see is a good thing. Everybody should be striving to understand hockey better. We're all chasing that fundamental, this player is good because of this. Yeah, I think there's like a superficial thing where somebody who isn't familiar with this stuff at all will look at a heat map or look at something like that and say, you know, this isn't even hockey. Like this looks like a weather radar or something like that. <laughs> but I think once you take kind of more than 30 seconds, it becomes pretty clear what's going on and, and how you can get value out of it. And uh, I mean, that's been my entire goal, I guess, has been trying to get through to the people who look at heat maps and say, I have no idea what this means and hopefully have had a, a little success with that. But I agree with you that I think more mainstream sources like The Athletic especially have gone a long way towards making people see the value in those kinds of things a, a little bit more than they used to. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've been a hockey fan for a while, a long time now. So what's your relationship like with your favorite hockey team? Uh, I'm a Penguins fan, so it's it's up and down, as you might <laughs> imagine. Uh, the, the the highs have definitely been uh, been super high, and I've been very fortunate for that. Uh, I was when I was a little kid, I was originally an Avalanche fan because uh, I got into hockey because of the uh, I don't know if you ever played the computer game Backyard Hockey, but that I... was uh, but that, that was a, a gift that I got for my birthday uh, for my grandpa, who I didn't see too often because he lived on the other side of the country, so I don't think he really knew what my interests were. But it worked out because I got obsessed with that game. Uh, Paul Korea was the fastest player or the fastest skater in that game. And so I decided that I would just cheer for whatever team he was on. And, and that year it happened to be the Colorado Avalanche. And then uh, after one year of cheering for them, they got rid of all my favorite players. So I had to uh, reset. And uh, uh, it just so happened that uh, a kid down the road named Sidney Crosby was going to get drafted. And so I just resolved that I would sit in front of the TV and whatever team won him in the draft lottery uh, would be my favorite team going forward. And uh, I mean, it, it's worked out pretty well since then in the uh, whatever it is, 15 years since. But, uh, you know, I, I think I probably have a similar relationship to my team than most people do. I am very psyched when they do things that are smart. Uh, I am very, very, very irritated when they do things that aren't. And uh, I mean, lately, at least in the off season, it's been more of the latter, but uh, 
you know, I don't think a Penguins fan can complain too much about what he's been put through in the past uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely not. I, I ask because so many people have such a wide ranging of views of their favorite team where there are people who fall into your category where you kind of roll with the punches, you see how you're feeling. You have the people who are more in my boat where it's like, I'm always going to be skeptical of what my team does until they actually do something right for a long-term period of time. And then there are just the blind optimists who seem to make up a large pocket of the people who use social media to get their information about hockey, where they just have the blind loyalty to the team and assume because this is my favorite team, they're never going to do me wrong. They're always trying to get better. Do you come across that, especially in the reactions to the work, your work specifically? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I do think that there's like a large contingent of hockey fans who, you know, their hockey team, like all the players on their hockey team are their friends and they like <laughs> all the players on their team. And it doesn't matter if they're playing poorly because it's, you know, it's their team. It's the guys that they watch when they sit down on the couch and watch the games every couple of days. And I don't have anything against that. If you just want hockey to be like light entertainment that you don't get angry at, I think that's probably the, that's the smartest way to approach it possible. But unfortunately we're stricken with a, greater illness than that and, and actually put a fix into what's going on on the ice. Uh, I mean, in terms of people acting in certain ways, you know, you're, every fan base has been mad at me at some point uh, <laughs> and every fan base has been happy with me at some point because, uh, you know, I, I was actually thinking of compiling a list of all the nice takes that I've had about each team just so that I could make sure to get them on their side. And as, as I'm sure you're, you know, getting, uh, Rangers fans were not particularly psyched with me this week, or at least a number of them weren't. Uh, and so I kind of had to keep pulling out the, my Adam Fox should have won the Calder take to try to get them back on my side. So, you know, you win some, you lose some with any fan base if you're going to be a person who has opinions about hockey online. Yeah. So how has your work changed your perspective of your favorite team? What kind of awakening did getting into analytics give you about the Penguins? I think it just makes you a bit more realistic about it and, it and it kind of can help you get out of whatever echo chamber that you might find yourself in. You know, like you said, social media is, is obviously going to be filled with certain types of hockey fans and, and it depends which area you go to. You know, if, if you're on, you know, let's say like HF boards or something, uh, it's very easy for that kind of community to become kind of a, an echo chamber where you kind of end up getting confirmation bias about certain players. Uh, and, and your opinion gets shaped by things that may not even actually be related to what you're seeing on the ice. It's more kind of what other people are saying and what narratives build up. So, you know, there are certain players like in the Penguins community, Zach Aston Reese is a guy who is generally a scapegoat because he lacks offensive talent of any type. Any type. But uh, when you actually watch him carefully, you can see what he's doing out there. Uh, and, and that's something that I think a lot of people wouldn't realize if they were just getting into the fun of, you know, taking the scapegoat and making fun of him online. Yeah, I think another place where it, where it helps you is, is in terms of being a little bit more realistic with your expectations about certain players. So, you know, in the case of the Penguins, uh, if I was somebody who didn't know anything about analytics and especially didn't know anything about kind of percentage luck, I might be going into next season super disappointed if Brian Russ didn't score 85 points and Jared McCann didn't score 25 goals or what have you. Uh, but as somebody who can look at things a little bit more objectively because of knowledge in those areas, you know, you can recognize them for the player that they are uh, and, you know, not be disappointed when it turns out that they don't have a 15% on a shooting percentage year after year after year, because that just doesn't happen. 
So I, I think, you know, it makes you a little bit more realistic. It makes you a bit more objective. And, and I think ultimately it does help you kind of be a little bit smarter about the games that you're watching. Uh, even if, you know, you know, if you're a fan of a team, you're watching all their games anyway. The analytics are supplementing what you're watching. Uh, as much as people on social media might say that you're just looking at graphs, you watch the same games they do. That's a beautiful way to transition into the next part of the conversation because I wanted to specifically ask you, when you're watching a game, what are you looking at? Are you looking at who's carrying the puck? Are they clearing the zone? Are they gaining the offensive zone? Are you looking at carrying versus dumping? What are you eyeballing when you're watching? It kind of depends. I, I, I mean, in my case lately, when I've been watching games, I've been watching games with certain players in mind. So I've been kind of isolating on them and, and trying to figure out what is leading to the results. Uh, you know, it, it, it depends on the situation. If you're just, if I'm just kind of watching my team play, uh, you know, I, I want to see obviously who's actually driving play, what they're doing. I, I want to kind of have a sense of what exactly the flow of the game is and who's keeping possession and things like that. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that when you're watching a game without isolating on a certain player or on even a certain line or something like that, there's things that you're necessarily going to miss. I mean, that's just fundamental to how, you know, why we use analytics in the first place is that if you're watching every single thing that's going on in the game and you're not isolating on anything in particular or even a certain type of play, like let alone player, you're going to miss plenty of things. You're going to miss macro level things that are happening. Uh, so, you know, you just want to be watching closely and carefully. And, and, and like you said, there are certain things that you can consider like, puck touches and possession and, you know, possession entries and things like that, that could be indicators, but they're not always necessarily going to tell the full story. When you're watching for a specific player, what I generally do is I get a sense of what is going on analytically first, not necessarily in that given game, but kind of over the course of the season. Uh, and I kind of look for things that might give me an indication of what exactly is leading to those results. Uh, and, and, and that can leave you with, I think a pretty useful, you know, it, it, it scouting report might be too formal, but a, you know, set of observations about what's making a certain player tick or not be effective. Yeah, because it really does depend, like you said, what you're looking for. Generally, when I am watching the Rangers, it's transition play because for the last few years, they've been so bad at clearing their own zone and they get hemmed in their own right. zone and they give up the long sustained pressures, which are more likely to result in goals. So it's, it really does matter on a case-by-case -case basis what you're looking for. So when you're evaluating eye test versus what you're seeing in the analytics, what has the biggest variance in terms of what do analytics not pick up the best in terms of what you're watching the game and the opposite? Sure. Well, so, I mean, analytics-wise, it, it, because it's providing kind of a macro-level overview, you know, like I said before, like you're, you're going to catch things at a micro level when you're watching the game, but you're not necessarily, other than kind of getting a vague feeling for, okay, this player seems to be getting stuck in his own end, or this line seems to be giving up a bunch of shots or generating a bunch of shots. You know, you can get a sense for it, but you don't actually get a way to, you know, quantify it in your head. You know, nobody's mind is a supercomputer like that. Um, so that's, that's where the analytics can be, I think, super helpful. Um, and especially because, you know, necessarily, if you're looking at things analytically, you care about more than just one game. You care about what's going on over the course of a full season. And, you know, nobody has the time to go back and rewatch an entire season of hockey. Uh, when it comes to 
what do you get from the eye test that you don't get from the analytics usually is the it's the how you know the analytics can give you a good sense or a good estimate of what's going on but you're never actually going to be able to really pick out exactly how those results are coming to be uh, unless you watch the game and i think that when people talk about you know you have to mix the analytics and the eye test i think that's the main part for me of, of what you're talking about is you know for instance as we're going to get into with the taco thing uh, if I'm looking at Kako's stats, it doesn't really tell me anything about how he plays or why his results are the way that they are. It just tells me that the results are bad. Whereas when I watch Kako, I can see what he's doing on the ice that's leading to those bad outcomes and the limitations that, that are leading to that. And, and that's just not something that you're ever going to be able to get from, you know, a heat map or a expected goals percentage or, or anything like that. So, you know, fundamentally, they're that serve two distinct purposes, but can be very easily added on to one another. And I still have yet, you know, I've, I've written something like 12 or 13 of those kind of long uh, player profiles. And, and I have not yet found a player where watching them, I just am completely baffled by where their stats come from. I think that, you know, the stats describe what's going on in the ice and, and that's always the case. You just have to have a discerning eye that, that can catch what's going on. Gotcha. So as far as what statistics give you the most information, are, I know we've kind of all, at least in the analytics community, moved past just basic Corsi Fenwick, and we're really heavy into expected goals now. Is that where you're at as well? Yeah, I tend to favor it. Uh, there are certain cases where uh, Corsi is, is a little bit more useful. Uh, when you're looking at small samples, especially, um, just because expected goals models aren't perfect, they they tend to level out over the course of a full season, uh, where you know because because fundamentally those kinds of models there's things that they can't include as inputs like pre-shot movement and breakaways and stuff like that. Um, so over the course of a full season, we kind of expect it to all even out. But in a small sample, if there's a shot that was actually totally harmless, but uh, as an expected goal, it, it showed up as being like right in front of the net as like a grade A chance that could totally throw off everything. And you could have a player whose expected goals is way higher than it actually should be. So in, in, in a small sample, you'd want to use Corsi or Fenwick instead. Um, but I mean, in terms of stats that I would generally trust, I tend to favor kind of the, you know, what, what are known as kind of the RAPM or, or uh, the, the heat maps in this case, you know, stuff that's kind of adjusted for every possible uh, external factor that could be impacting them because you know, that's kind of the first thing whenever you talk about a player's stats, the first thing that a defensive fan will always say is, well, yeah, but he plays without me or, or he plays, you know, he starts his own, he starts his shifts in the defensive zone or, you know, he plays against top competition or any number of things. And so when you can present numbers that have been adjusted for those things, you're going to make a stronger argument, but you're also going to have better information in front of you to make a fair judgment of a player. So just as a quick baseline, if I wanted to explain to someone in like two or three sentences how, how expected goals work and how they're calculated, what's the easy answer I can give them? Uh, the easy answer is um, every shot is not equally dangerous. Some shots are more dangerous than others. Some shots are more likely to lead to goals than others. Uh, expected goals uses a formula based on previous seasons of shot data where you, it observes how likely certain shots were to go in the net and it just basically measures uh, the number of goals that you would be expected to have the quality and quantity of the shots that you're taking that was 
beautifully said and a lot easier than when I tried to explain it to someone the other day. So thank you for that. I'll be sure to be referencing that exactly. And the oh, last- yes, I've, been, I've been well practiced. Yeah, it, it's hard. I, I feel like I'm a crazy person sometimes when I'm just like, yeah, look, the, the chart, it's right there. It's clearly visual. You can see yeah. this shot is worth a lot more than that one. And they're like, yeah. but that doesn't account for a deflection and stuff like that. But yes, it does. I promise it does. Yeah, yeah. There, there are certain things that can't be included and certain things that can't be just based on the data available. So you can, you can calculate what's a rebound. You can estimate what's a shot that's taken off the rush. You can, you know, deflections are, are included, you know, slap shots, wrist shots, all that kind of stuff is, is included in the calculation. It's really the biggest things are, you know, sh shots off the rush aren't perfect one-timer shots aren't perfect, you know, two-on-ones aren't perfect, uh, breakaways, you know, all of that stuff isn't necessarily being taken into account. And there have been things that I've written where I've said that I believe with certain players, uh, the expected goals aren't actually capturing what's going on. But for the most part, it's, it's generally the best way that we have of approximating, you know, the extent to which a player is driving or giving up scoring chances when they're on the ice. And, and often I will just say scoring chances instead of expected goals just because for your average fan, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, absolutely. I've tended to do that when I've written the more in-depth stuff because going into the playoffs, I was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. The Rangers aren't beating Carolina. Carolina is one of the best possession teams in the regular season, and the Rangers are not. This is not going to go particularly well. They even, And it's a good example of what you said before in terms of the small sample versus the large sample. Yeah, the Rangers beat the Hurricanes all four times in the regular season during this past year. But if you look down on a micro level, those weren't based on like repeatable outcomes. The Rangers were heavily out chanced in all of those games, and the expected goals were even worse than the scoring chances. So it's one of those things where we can take what the analytics are giving us and tell us, hey, wait, maybe just because this game ended like this, it doesn't mean it's part of a larger pattern, which I think is something that especially last year, Ranger fans really fell into the trap of doing because the way they were winning wasn't sustainable. Yeah, no, it's, it definitely, you know, I, I mean, that's one of the things and, and I'm sure I'll get even more ire from Rangers fans when I say, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Panarin's not having that season again. Ryan Strom's not having that season again. It was incredible what they did, but I mean, they had like a 16% on ice shooting percentage and, and I think they scored like 75% of the goals when they were on the ice and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they deserve full credit for doing that within this past season. But I, I really hope that Rangers fans aren't going to be annoyed at Artemi Panarin when he only scores 85 points next year instead of, you know, being on pace for 100. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like we said, us, the people who like take this seriously, we realize the limitations of it and the average fan just kind of, they'll be like, okay. Or they'll be the, yeah, okay. Well, Zabinajad had almost a hundred something points last year. He'll be fine. We've got Panarin. We've got Lafreniere. We got Kako. We, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. The people who delude yeah. themselves because, you know, like you said, these are their friends. They're on their hockey team. They want them to play well. Yeah. Yeah. Zabinajad's the big one where I, I do feel like Zibanejad has become massively overrated just over the course of the past couple months because I think people look at his hockey DB page, they see how many points he scored and in how many games, and they see that he was on pace for like 55 goals or whatever, and I think they they called a day after that. But, uh, you know, again, just just like what I said earlier with, uh, with my 
fandom and Brian Rust, who, who's another guy who kind of went on a bit of a shooting better. You know, if, if you're realistic about what's going on, you're not setting yourself up for disappointment. You're just being more realistic about how good an already good player is instead of expecting them to be, you know, the next coming of Wayne Gretzky when it turns out that, you know, they just had a couple shots happen to go in that normally wouldn't have. Some brave soul tries to make the point every few weeks on hockey Twitter that, you know, points aren't everything, and they are immediately laughed out of the room by the greater majority. But what can we say to people who are skeptical of when analytics folks make that argument? Uh, I mean, points aren't nothing, but, you know, like I, I still, whenever I do a visualization, I do include points because they tell you part of the story of what happened. The thing is that I think people will tend to use points as the all-encompassing measure of a player's value, uh, and, and that will be something that they'll tend to go towards in, in a large part because hockey isn't basketball. So hockey doesn't have like a wide set of stats. It really, the, the core of things is points, and then everything else is pretty much unreliable. And I think even most people recognize that they're pretty unreliable. Uh, I mean, the easiest thing to say is that points are an offensive stat. You know, when analytics people are talking about hockey players, they're talking about two ends of the game, uh, which is, I think there's a kind of irony to it where analytics people kind of get a reputation for being, you know, oh, we only want like skilled, soft, small players, uh, when it's really the analytics community that cares more about the defensive play of superstars than anyone else. Um, but I mean, you know, that's the fact of the matter. The, the two core flaws with points are it's not a defensive stat at all. There's no defense involved in that stat at all. And in fact, sacrificing defense might even lead you to score more, even more points. Uh, and then the other thing is that points are obviously intuitively and have historically heavily influenced by your line mates. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you that Chris Dunitz probably wouldn't have been a <laughs> 37 goal scorer in the 2014 season if he hadn't been playing with Sidney Crosby. Uh, and, and there's endless examples of players who have benefited in terms of points uh, because of talented line mates that wouldn't necessarily have happened if they weren't playing with them. So when you're talking about points as a stat that, that measures a player's specific value overall, what you're saying is, I don't care about defense and I'm just going to ignore who this guy played with, which I think uh, is, is a pretty fundamentally flawed way to evaluate a player's overall play. That's not to say that points should be thrown out entirely, but I mean, they're, they're definitely not everything. And uh, in, in many cases can be pretty hugely misleading. Yeah. Cause I, when it came to the part this year, that was the main fault line where you fell, whether you felt that, because Dryside will put up the counting stats, it should be him. Or if you were in the camp of, well, Panarin had such a good season at even strength with bad line mates and still managed to drive possession pretty well and not be a defensive liability like Dryside, you felt Panarin should have won. Or McKinnon even, you probably could have made a better argument for McKinnon than Dryside in terms of the underlying stuff. It's one of those things where your perspective is really going to influence your opinion on that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the dry cycle case is that he scored the most points and, and he scored a bunch of goals. And, you know, again, I'm not going to fault your average person if they're not, you know, if they don't want to turn hockey into homework and <laughs> dig into detailed fancy stats. But, you know, I'd, I'd say for kind of a more general, you know, your more diehard fan, I, I think that it is kind of a bit of cognitive dissonance for them to 
pretend that defense doesn't matter in some cases, and then defense is the only thing that matters when it comes to certain players they don't particularly like uh, or teams that they think are are flawed. So, yeah, you know, if you if you like you said, if what you care about is everything that's on the hockey DB page, then you, know, you probably thought Drysaddle should win it. Uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, I think it was pretty clear that he wasn't the best candidate. Uh, I don't think I had him in my top five. I think I was kind of in the Dom Lucision category where I just couldn't overcome that barrier and, and you know, get Dreisaitl in my top five over guys like, you know, I think my top three was Hellebuck number one, Panarin number two, and McKinnon number three. Um, and that, I think, seems like a much more fitting set of the players who were really the most valuable overall compared to uh, what ended up being the case. Absolutely. Hellebuck buoyed that Winnipeg team. I still don't know how he played as well as he did, all things considered. Yeah, no, he was, uh, considering everything that he faced, he, uh, he lit it up, and, and I think the Jets are going to see what happens when a goalie regresses to the mean next year, most likely. Yeah. So now it's it's time for the main reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about this Kako piece because I agreed with you and I've been getting a lot of flack from my casual hockey friends, my serious hockey friends. Like they took him second overall. He's going to be fine. And then I kind of just went through all of the underlying stuff and I was like, there are real problems here. And it's not just tied to who he was playing with. There are fundamental flaws with how he plays. So I'm going to open up the floor a little bit for you to just talk a little bit about what you noticed watching him, first of all, because I think that'll help set the stage a little bit for when we talk about the numbers. Yeah, so I think that Kako, in a lot of ways, lived up to parts of his scouting report uh, and parts of his game definitely lined up with why scouts and analysts thought that he was going to be an effective in it day one uh he does have a pretty heavy shot he uh is strong on the puck he possesses it pretty well um the problem for me watching him is that everything else is just a catastrophe uh as in terms of you know and and i'll i'll use an example here from my own personal experience uh do you play uh beer league or men's league hockey not since college no okay uh so i i mean i haven't since college because I've been in quarantine since college, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I can play hockey, but I'm not a particularly good player. Uh, and so I usually play kind of high C or low B in, uh, in Toronto where I am. Uh, occasionally my friends who are better at hockey than I am will have a teammate be ill or, you know, can't make the game because their kid is sick or something like that. And they'll say, Hey, we need a player. Do you want to come up and play? And I'll be like, all right, sure. Free ice. And like, get a chance to play with my friends who I normally don't play with because they're way better than me. Uh, and I get out there and there's just no room on the ice. Everything is much faster than I'm used to. I have no room to make any decisions. And so what I end up doing is, you know, I'll carry the puck for as long as I can, if I have some space. Uh, and then as soon as somebody bears down on me, I will be terrified of turning it over. So I will throw it on the net or throw it to where I think a person might be, uh, where I basically won't have given up a huge turnover or occasionally a defender that I'm facing will kind of tease me by giving me a little space. So I'll try to make a move around him and then uh, it will be immediately smacked away from me and, and I'll have made a huge turnover. So I'm not getting too many touches. I'm not getting too many giveaways necessarily, but my team is getting completely caved in. 
that's what I saw from Kako, essentially. I felt a lot of sympathy for Kako watching him because it reminded me like the much, much, much better version of my own experiences when playing up in beer league. The guy just wasn't ready. He's not ready on the small ice. Uh, his tunnel vision with the puck is is just unbelievable. You know, he just can't see the ice very well. He can't make passes. Uh, he can't find his line mates. He's not super active in the cycle or forechecking. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, he'll either turn over the puck, uh, especially when he's trying to handle a pass uh, or trying to carry it to the inside, uh, or he'll just throw it on the net from far away and, and, and nothing will happen. Possession will end. And uh, I think that something as small as that kind of tunnel vision just completely snuffed out his entire season. Uh, and in terms of his results, where he just got caved in night after night after night, he would occasionally show something that would resemble flashes of a star player where you'd see him protecting the puck and looking like he did at the world championships. But NHL defensemen are a lot better than the defensemen on, you know, the third pairing of team Slovakia or in the Finnish league. And he would just run out of space and, uh, and that would be the end of that. So, you know, that, that's what I saw on the ice from Kako. And it was pretty worrying in terms of, you know, it was certainly not what I had expected to see. Uh, and and it's it's worrying, and we can get into this in terms of kind of where you go from there to address that issue. Yeah, because I remember everybody going nuts when he scored that goal in the prospect tournament in August of last year, where he just held onto the puck for 30 seconds, skated around, took it behind the net, and took a, a shot from the high slot, and it went in. And I was like, he's not going to be able to do this in the NHL against, like, you know, yeah. professional hockey players. And yeah. Do you think it's a case of the talent he was playing in his draft year just wasn't that good and he was just that much better than everyone else so that he's coming against better players, there's going to be a steep learning curve? Or do you think that his style of play just doesn't work in the NHL? I don't know. I, I think it might be somewhere in between where, you know, like you said with the prospect tournament, it was the same way where I didn't end up including it in the piece, but I did watch uh, some of his play from the world championships. And it was the exact same thing. Like you just said, holding on to the puck kind of, you know, working uh, on the, on the boards. And I think a lot of scouts saw that and they thought, Oh, this is Sidney Crosby. This is Peter Forsberg. But the difference is that, you know, Kako can't pass the puck very well uh, unless he's on the power play or has a lot of space. Uh, and so what he would do is he would, you know, wind the puck, you know, around the boards to the best extent that he could, which is obviously uh, less easy to do when you're not in a prospects tournament or not playing against team Belarus or, or what have you. Uh, and because he doesn't have the vision to see who's out there and because he doesn't have the playmaking ability to connect those passes, uh, you know, once he gets out of those battles or and he has somebody on his back, you know, what's the decision that he's making with the puck? It's not going to be to make a good pass. Uh, it's to throw it on the net from a terrible angle uh, or to just fling it through the crease in the hopes that somebody might be there. And, uh, you know, I mean, he plays with Brett Howard. Nobody's going to be there. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I think it really is a case of where he had a skill set that reminded people of certain players who had that kind of grind it below, uh, below the goal line style and found success with it. But he just doesn't have the complementary skills that you need to be effective playing that way. And I don't know if it's something that he can develop. People who, you know, I mean, we can touch on this later. I won't, uh, I won't delve too deep into what comes next for that. But definitely, I think your observations line up with what I saw from watching, uh, you know, whatever, I think, 20 games of his from, uh, from last year. 
So now that we've established the baseline, the bad habits, and we peel back the layers a little bit and we look at the underlying numbers, when we're talking about like expected goals, that translates to lower expected goals because he's taking crappier shots. But how much of the fact that the Rangers as a team just were so bad defensively last year where they were constantly conceded scoring chances, does that hammer him even worse on top of his already bad habits? Or is it a case of, yeah, he had a, lot, a hard time on offense, but because his defense was so bad as a result of the team being bad, it drags down his numbers even more. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's tricky to say exactly. I mean, you know, the, the numbers where he was so horrible defensively are ones that have been adjusted for teammates. Uh, so if it was something that was mostly or purely being caused by the guys he was playing with, that would come out from there. Um, I think, you know, I, I said in the piece, I didn't see too much of what he was doing in the defensive zone that really, you know, that, you know, he wasn't like floating or looking for breakaway passes or anything like that. You know, I guess realistically, realistically realizing he doesn't have the speed to take a breakaway if he got one, but he, you know, he was active and, you know, using his stick and running around and stuff like that. Uh, I admit that I'm not, I don't, my eye test may not be necessarily strong enough to capture all the little subtleties of a winger's defensive zone play. Uh, if it was, I would be a hell of a lot better hockey player when it comes to being a winger in the defensive zone. But, you know, there were certain issues defensively in terms of, you know, just constant turnovers, uh, not being able to handle passes very well. And, you know, again, things that happen in the offensive zone, it's something that I always get into in, in pieces is stuff that happens in the offensive zone. You know, that's defense too. anything that you do that keeps the puck away from your net is defense. And in Kako's case, you know, it's not only that his expected goals for are going down because he's flinging pucks to the net. It's that when everything that he does is one and done because his teammates, he's going to get creamed in terms of possession. And that's, that shows in kind of every type of stat that he's, uh, that he's bad at in, uh, defensively, whether it's shot attempts or expected goals or, or goals or whatever you want to talk about. So what is the best way for people to understand the line mate relationship to a player in terms of production what's the best way for someone who doesn't totally understand analytics how do they impact each other is the best way to ask this question yeah i, I mean i think it's pretty intuitive there really isn't a perfect way to you know and, and some people have tried but there really isn't a perfect way to you know analytically figure out like which players are going to play well together you can kind of guess who's going to be complementary based on their skill sets and those skill sets can be measured by certain analytics, but in a lot of cases, you really just have to see how they work together on the ice. Uh, you know, in the case of Kako, I don't think he worked with Howden and uh, Philip Schiedel because Howden just really just offered absolutely nothing that Kako needed. You know, I, I list a long list of things that Howden can't do uh, in the piece. And they are basically every single skill set that you would want a player playing with Kapo Kako to have, he doesn't have. So that was basically just a dead on arrival combination. Um, at the same time, I would caution people to not, and especially Rangers fans, to not write off all of Kako's issues to Brett Howden. Because if you actually watch them play together, you know, Kako really is not an active player on that line. You know, really it was uh, Howden who was doing a lot of the work in terms of, you know, grinding for pucks and working on the cycle and stuff. And, you know, Howden's not a good player, but he was at least doing that. And, uh, 
you know, if you're watching Kako, he, he really is kind of a passive player. He really is kind of standing in the high slot, just waiting for a puck to trickle to him. And because Howden's not a great playmaker, it just never did. Um, and and which which means that I, I feel like Rangers have the fans seem to have the tendency to blame Howden for everything that went wrong on that line. But, I, you know, watching it, you get the sense that Kako is just as, if not more, uh, responsible for everything that uh, didn't work out and made that line one of the worst in the league. In terms of when he's playing up in the lineup, uh, you know, if you look, I kind of list off the stats from all the combinations that Kaka played with. You know, he, when he was playing with Zvanjak and Kreider, when he was playing with Panarin or and, uh, and Strom, uh, particularly when he was playing with kind of those less used combinations like, uh, like Panarin and, and Zvanjak, you know, he was, those lines were horrible. Like they were absolutely horrible. Their numbers were unfath- unfathomably bad and there was no Brett Howden to be seen. And I think a big part of it is because when you're Kako and you're playing with skilled players, you need to be the guy who's forechecking and grinding and getting pucks to your guys. And Kako just does not have the skills except for strength to be a puck retriever because once he retrieves the puck, you know, he's not going to, you know, he's, he's the golden retriever that just sits with the ball and doesn't actually bring it back to you. So uh, if he's playing with a guy like Panarin's advantage, at, you know, he's the absolute last thing that they need. So, you know, I think you just have to watch carefully and not have the assumption that your star prospect is the most skilled player on the line or going to be, you know, broken out if he's just kept away from this, uh, from a, a less than desirable line mate. And you have to actually get a realistic sense of what he's doing and not doing out there. How much concern on a scale of one to 10 should the Rangers have if they're, they view Kako as one of their key building blocks to a contender? How concerned should they be that this guy might not be able to be a 25-point, 25-goal, 50-point guy going forward? I, so here's the thing. The people who I have talked to who are actually player development people, like who, who work in that area and have coached in that area, have said that they think that he's going to be fine, that they think that he'll sort it out, that he was getting familiarized to smaller ice and harder line mates and or harder uh, harder defensemen and, and things like that, and that he'll adapt to that and that he has a physical skill set that will allow him to be a contributor. You know, and, and I, I take their word for that because they have a lot more knowledge in this area than I do. I will say if, if I hadn't talked to them, I admit that I would be a little bit concerned just because when I see the skills that are lacking there, they're the skills that aren't really easy to work on. Uh, you know, he, I, I think as anybody saw in the bubble, he came back from the hiatus stronger uh, and a little bit faster, which definitely helped him look a lot better. Um, but the same fundamental issues were there in terms of being a complimentary player, using his line mates, passing the puck, uh, creating offense with anything other than his shot and puck protection. Uh, and that's just something that's a lot tougher to work on. And especially if he's going to be put on the first line next year, you know, he really isn't getting an opportunity to work on those things at a reasonable pace. Uh, and, and this really is kind of a, a thing where I kind of wonder where that development's going to come from. I mean, if you've been training by yourself in Finland for six months or whatever, or, or however long it's been since August, it's, it's felt like six months, uh, you know, how are you going to be working on those things like, tunnel vision if you're just like working out with yourself in a rink in Finland. I, I don't know about that. Uh, so, I, so I personally will be interested to see how he can adjust to things next year uh, and, and how he can 
hopefully improve. I mean, he literally there's like no way that he could possibly get any worse. So, I, you know, and I guess not on wood, but uh, you know, we didn't really touch his uh, his his underlying numbers were literally the worst ever. Uh, and and there really is no way to sugarcoat that. I mean, if if you're looking at his impact on expected goals and scoring chances at both ends of the ice, you know, his overall impact was worse than every season Tanner Glass has ever had or any, you know, like Luke Gazdick or any enforcer who came on, you know, any season that John Scott has played, you know, regardless of how much more talented Kako is than those players, he still was less effective overall in terms of, uh, you know, tilting the rank in the Rangers direction. So there's, there's, there's no way to go down from here. He's going to keep working on those physical skills. I'm sure he'll look a lot more impressive next season. The real test is just going to be is going to be to see how he can complement his line mates and and hopefully drive play a little bit better. In terms of criticism for the Kako piece, what did you feel was reasonable, and what did you feel was just this is a Rangers homer? I who's upset that I told him his number two overall pick isn't very good. Well, I mean the so I'll I'll start with the invalid ones because those are <laughs> more fun. Uh, I mean, the first thing is, you know, I was given the advice once that uh, you should always write uh, in a way that makes you absolutely 100% certain who hasn't read what you wrote. <laughs> uh, and that was definitely the case here, where there were a lot of Rangers fans who were reacting to the headline rather than the actual content of the article who were saying, you know, well, if you actually watch it play, you'll notice this and ignoring all the tape or saying, you know, well, this might have been the case in the regular season, but he was a lot better in the bubble, ignoring the 600 words about the bubble and the three highlight reels and everything. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff is just to be expected, but it's good to be absolutely certain about about what exactly is going on. Uh, another one that I got that I, I really didn't, uh, you know, take only to were the people who were kind of just brushing it off saying, you know, oh, he's an 18 year old player. He's a 19 year old player. Like, of course he's going to make mistakes. Like, you know, it's not fair to call this a historically bad season uh, because, you know, he's like, what did you expect from a 19 year old? He's going to make mistakes when, you know, the main thrust of the article is like, this guy literally was historically bad compared to every 18 year old or 19 year old or 20 year old, et cetera, et cetera, in the past 15 years. So, you know, I, th I think that's a fair statement. Um, the ones that were valid, there was one that I got quite a bit that is just something that's impossible to really adjust for and something that I didn't really feel comfortable touching on just based on, you know, even watching the games that I did because I was only watching Kako, I didn't feel comfortable really commenting on, which is uh, the uh, David Quinn effect in terms of <laughs> coaching. Uh, I, I know that, I, you know, from what I can tell, the criticisms of, of his coaching are extremely valid. Uh, the, the small set of coaching analytics that we do have that are more kind of estimates and definitely very nebulous in terms of where they come from and how useful they are. They do list him as being, you know, the worst, having the worst system in the league. Uh, the, you know, and, and I mean, you can just look at line deployments and say, you know, David Quinn was the one who decided to play Kaka without him for that long. So, you know, that's, that seems to be on him. Uh, Although I will say, just as a sidebar, people were talking a lot about the, the kind of Howden factor and, and, and how he shouldn't have been playing with Howden. But I mean, the real criticism there should be that Howden was in the lineup because the notion that they should have broken up the 
Panarin uh, Stroman fast line to put Kako on it, even though that the, that was the best line in the NHL this year, uh, or that they should have uh, taken, you know, uh, uh, put him on the right wing with with Zibanejad uh, and uh, Kreider. You know, also when that line was clicking ridiculously, I don't really see it. But overall, people who say, you know, well, David Quinn's the worst coach in the NHL. You know, clearly he didn't do him any favors. You know, that that might be valid. And, and you know, I mean, he's going to be the Rangers coach next year. He might not be after that. And, and maybe there will be a difference there. But I think fundamentally, you can talk about that from a development perspective. But what I saw from Kako in terms of his own personal play did seem to be his kind of personal responsibility rather than the system that he was playing in. Yeah, I'm on the Quinn. I've been off of Quinn as being a good coach since about halfway through his first season with the team. And since he's been the Rangers head coach, they've just given up the most scoring chances of any team in hockey. And that's including this past year where they gave him dramatically better players. Like for what you think of Jacob Truba, he's better than anyone they had playing defense on the team the year before, aside from D'Angelo. He's better than Mark Stahl. He's better He's better than anyone they had the year before. They gave him Fox. D'Angelo got better last year. And they still yeah. gave up the second most scoring chances in the league last year after giving up the most the year before and added together. It's the most in the, over the last two years. Yeah, there's that definitely some some questionable things. You know, again, uh, it, it's something that is a little bit nebulous, but you can look at kind of team-level microstats to get a sense of how a team is, is being run and what system they're playing. And one thing that really struck me as weird about the Rangers is that they give up the zone voluntarily like yep. crazy. Like they, it, I guess it seems to be kind of in their, in their system that they want players to collapse on the rush and just close out the middle of the net. And I guess that just ends up with them getting completely smoked possession wise as a result. But my favorite thing about that stat is you can kind of look up the players on that team and every single one of their defensemen ranks near the bottom in terms of uh, denying zone entries, uh, except for Adam Fox who ranks near the top, because I guess he just said, screw it that's not like that doesn't apply to me so I'll just do whatever the hell I want and uh clearly it worked out so hopefully you know Jacques Martin is gonna come in there and say oh that's stupid we're not gonna do that anymore uh, otherwise they could be in uh, quite a bit of trouble again because that does seem like a pretty easy thing to fix it's just tell the players to be a little bit more aggressive against the rush so the last question I have for you is very very simple how will we know if Kako is actually getting better um, I mean, you know, I, I won't use the cop-out answer, which is looking at his stats. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's just an obvious one. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, like I said before, you'll know that he's better because he, you know, just by default can't get any worse than he was last year. So you can be pretty assured that he's going to be anyway. But if we're just talking, you know, you're watching the games, you want to know if he's doing better, you know, based on what I saw in the bubble, I'm sure that he'll look better. I'm sure that he will be stronger, faster, and his shot will be a little bit better and, and all this stuff will happen and he'll look a lot better. Uh, if you're trying to see whether he is actually, you know, turning into an effective top nine or top six, you know, or even top line player in the NHL, the thing that I'd be watching for is all the stuff that we've been talking about him not having, you know, him being able to find his line mates after possessing the puck down low, uh, him being able to, you know, make a good pass, him not deciding that he's going to go one-on-one -on -one with every defenseman he faces, uh, him not just whipping shots into the logo from, you know, 40 feet away because a defenseman just bearing down on him. You know, I think necessarily you look at the players on the Rangers 
uh, especially on the left wing where they're now, you know, one of the most loaded teams, if not the most loaded team on the left wing moving forward, you know, Kako's going to have to figure out how to be a complimentary player. He's not going to be for a long time, you know, unless he can really, really break out in all those areas. And he's going to be playing with guys who need to have the puck. Uh, you know, he's going to be playing with, you know, Panarin, who he's going to need to be able to be, you know, something approximating what Jesper Fast was in terms of puck recoveries and things like that. Uh, and, and, and a four-checker. He's going to need to help get Zibanejad pucks so that he can fire them because it's more important that Zibanejad shoots the puck than Capococco does. Uh, or, or with Lafreniere. I mean, if you really think about it, Lafreniere going into the NHL based on the scouting reports that we have and, you know, what you can just see from watching him at the World Juniors or in the CHL is kind of like the anti-Kako in terms <laughs> of his, you know, his, his hockey IQ is absurdly high. Uh, he's just an, an unbelievable passer who just kind of controls the pace of play when he's on the ice and you can see plays before they happen. And, and you can see just kind of watching him play how everybody else on the ice kind of respects that he is kind of at another level from them. He is kind of, if Kako Kako can work it out, he would be the perfect left wing to play with Kako, where Kako would not have to be super creative. Uh, he would just have to be a little bit more complimentary and a little bit more disciplined in terms of where he's taking shots uh, than he is right now. So the best case scenario that I would say would be that Kako can work out those areas where he could compliment Lafreniere uh, and, and turn himself into, if not the superstar that I think he probably thinks that he is turning into right now uh, and becomes a little bit better at, at helping out his line mates and really helping a line tick, then, then he'll absolutely be better and the Rangers will be pretty well set. It really is a matter of hopefully him getting the development work from the coaching to make sure that he actually starts to play that way and, and instead of trying to do it all himself. That was beautifully said. I cannot wait to edit that into a little pullout to tweet that. That was perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to retweet it. I'm always happy to retweet complimentary things about myself. So I appreciate it, Jack. Where can the people out there find your work? So you can find me on Twitter at jfreshhockey. Uh, I'm, I'm on there too much, so I'm sure you'll see some uh, frequent content on there. Uh, you can also read my writing, uh, including the Kaka piece. I also have a, a, a similar piece on Jack Hughes coming uh, tomorrow. So if Rangers fans want to be even more mad at me, they can read that. Uh, that's at uh, jfresh.substack.com. Uh, I've done kind of, if you like the Kaka piece or if you're interested in it, I've done similar breakdowns of, you know, a dozen players from Dougie Hamilton to Steph Jones to Johnny Gaudreau to Taylor Hall and, and, and what have you. Uh, and then finally, if you look at that stuff and you see the visualizations, which are kind of the main thing that I do, and you think those look nice and you'd like to see them for everybody on your team, then you can uh, subscribe to my Patreon, uh, which is also at JFresh Hockey, uh, where I have a whole bunch of stuff, including player cards and timelines, uh, as well as a roster builder tool where you can build a roster for next year uh, or from any of the past 13 seasons uh, and see how it would be expected to perform based on uh, the team's wins above replacement. So if you want to see what it would look like if, you know, they decided to play Capocaco on the first line for some reason last year, uh, you can see just how many points in the standings they would have lost by doing that. Uh, or you can go all the way back to 2008 and, you know, play Yarmer Yager with whoever you wanted for the Rangers and see what would happen. So a lot of stuff to do. And uh, yeah, I think that pretty much covers me. 
support your content creators out there, people. People like Jack work very hard to make creative, engaging content. It means the world to people like me, people like Jack, that people want to read our stuff, share our stuff. If you can't afford it, support your independent content creators. We really do appreciate it. Uh, I'll second that. All right, Jack. Thank you for coming on. Once we have a better idea of when hockey season is going to happen, I would love to have you back. Yep, I'd be happy to uh, happy to talk Rangers then. Get a little All bit right. deeper into the defense, and, and maybe I'll give you some uh, some quality Adam Fox content there too. I would love nothing more. Thank you, folks. We will see you guys next time.